It's a term you may not be familiar with, but it's extremely important. In fact, the term is worldview. And for the most part, it means just that, how one views the world. Today, you'll see just how intensely worldviews often clash. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. Dr. Zukerin is a scholar, author, and speaker who addresses spiritual and cultural issues of concern to all of us. Today, Pat is speaking before an audience on the subject of worldviews. He'll discuss how to evaluate your worldview, which one is best, how would one choose among all the worldview options. It's going to be a very informative show, so stay right here. And as always, you can find so many resources at evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, past radio shows you may not have heard, interviews with experts, Pat's books and articles, and so much more. That's at evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to Pat Zukerin with part two of Clash of Worldviews. Today, modern man is faced with a supermarket of worldviews, all of them claiming to be true. You can identify someone's worldview by how they answer five basic questions. First one is what is the nature of God? Secondly, creation. Why does the universe exist? Third, deals with the nature of man. What is the nature of man? Fourth, deals with the issue of sin. What is man's problem? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And finally, salvation. What's the solution to man's problem? How someone answers these five vital questions will determine what their worldview is. Now, there's three basic worldviews, and these lie at the foundation of all religions and philosophies. The three are theism, naturalism, and pantheism. Here's an easy way to remember them. Theism says God made all, naturalism says no God at all, and pantheism, God is all. God and the universe are one. God is not a person in pantheism. God is a it. He's a force made up of everything in the universe. Therefore, the Christian life applies to all of life, not only the spiritual life, but to the real world out there. Do biblical principles apply to medicine and medical technology? You bet. You bet. Does it apply to politics and political philosophy? You bet. Does it apply to economics and business ethics? You bet. I've interviewed some top businessmen, you know, the vice president of Viasat. Uh, you can listen to that interview at evidenceandanswers.org, and I asked them, can economics of a country succeed if they do not apply biblical principles? And he said, no way. It cannot succeed. Eventually, your economy will come crashing down. And that's what you see in the plight of much around us here, when you're not applying biblical principles to our economic system here. Christianity is a comprehensive worldview. It applies to all of life. Yet, unfortunately, we make this dangerous dichotomy here. We see so many sermons focused just on my personal walk with God. How many sermons do you hear about art and a Christian worldview perspective on art? How many sermons do you hear about a Christian perspective, Christian worldview perspective on medicine and the sciences? How many uh, sermons do you hear on a Christian worldview perspective regarding education or literature or how to watch a movie and entertainment and music? Very little, very little. So even the preaching from our pulpit makes that dangerous kind of dichotomy. So if there's one thing you understand tonight, I hope you understand, Christianity is more than just about my personal spiritual life. Christianity is a comprehensive worldview. And understanding that is going to allow you to live out your Christian faith. Now, of this dangerous dichotomy, a famous Christian theologian and philosopher, Francis Schaeffer, wrote this. He said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. 
truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality, truth with a capital T, and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in light of that truth. Nancy Piercy, a fine scholar and author, she writes this, As Christian parents, teachers, and youth group leaders, we constantly see young people pulled down by the undertow of powerful cultural trends. If all we give them is a heart religion, it will not be strong enough to counter the lure of attractive but dangerous ideas. Young believers also need a brain religion, training in worldview and apologetics to equip them to analyze and critique competing worldviews they will encounter when they leave home. So in order for us to engage the ideas of the culture, discern truth from error, how does our Christianity apply to all the world around us? We've got to understand worldviews and that Christianity is not just about my personal spiritual life. It's a comprehensive worldview. It applies to all of life. Here's some very disturbing statistics given to us by Christian sociologist George Barna in his book, Think Like Jesus. After his extensive study, he realized that only 10% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Only 2% of Christian teenagers have a biblical worldview. And one of the most shocking discoveries was this. Less than 50% of pastors have a biblical worldview. Is it any wonder then that the church has such a small impact on the world around us? How can we expect to change the world if we think just like the culture around us? So understanding worldviews enables us to live out our faith fully in this world. Second, understanding worldviews will enable us to be if more effective in our evangelism. Remember, there's three basic worldviews. Theism, naturalism, and pantheism. Now, one important principle to remember is this. All three cannot be true at the same time. This is called Aristotle's Law of Non-Contradiction. It's a very basic law. It's, it's the foundation of logic. Right? It's the foundation of thinking, and we apply it every day. So don't be intimidated. You know, when I say Aristotle's law of non-contradiction, all right? You apply it every day. For example, you cannot have a coherent conversation without applying Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. You apply it every day. For example, if you came to me and said, Pat, are you speaking at New Hope Christian Fellowship tonight? And I said, sure I am, but I'm not. Oh, Pat, um, will you be having notes tonight for us to follow? Sure, I'll have notes, but I won't have any. <laughs> you see, you won't be able to have a coherent conversation without a with uh, out applying Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. People all over the world apply this law every day. It's the foundation of reasoning and logical thinking. All three worldviews cannot be true at the same time in the same way. If God exists, then the statement God, then the belief God does not exist, the worldview of naturalism cannot be true. If God created the universe out of nothing, the universe has a beginning, then the universe is not eternal. And pantheism cannot be true. If God is a personal God, then pantheism which states God is an impersonal force, and it cannot be true. So you see, all three cannot be true at the same time and in the same way. Now, remember, these three worldviews form the foundation of all philosophies and religions that are out there. Naturalism is the foundation of Darwinism and atheistic existentialism, socialism and Southern Buddhism, pantheism, is the foundation of the Eastern religions, animism, Hinduism, New Age, Northern Buddhism, Taoism, New Age, Transcendental Meditation, and more. Theism is the foundation of the three great monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. When sharing our faith with the unbelieving world, we often make the mistake of going to the gospel right away. 
Well, a naturalist will simply look at you and say, well, since there is no God, miracles are not possible. Your faith is completely unreasonable and irrational. There is no God, there can be no Son of God, and no Word of God, and miracles are not possible. And if you share, if you go to the Gospel right away with a pantheist who believes all is one, he'll simply add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. You know, they'll say, oh, thank you, I'll take Jesus too. And Krishna. Well, who else you want to give me? You know, we see that problem here in our culture. Uh, I remember there were pastors here who were deeply troubled because they had a deacon serving in their church and when he died, he wanted a Buddhist funeral. Well, why was that? Well, because he's thinking like a pantheist. All is one. I'll just take Jesus and add him too. Who else do you want to give me? What we have to do is we have to show that we live in a theistic universe. Okay, We begin at worldviews. If we're dealing with someone who does not hold to the worldview of theism, then we have to begin by showing them we live in a theistic universe, that a personal God exists who created the universe out of nothing. If you can show that we live in a theistic universe, then the worldviews of naturalism and pantheism cannot be true. Thus, the philosophies and religions that are built on their foundation are ultimately then false. Right? I mean, they're not false in everything they teach. They have some truths in them, but ultimately, okay, they are false. And you're left with Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And which one of these is confirmed by miracles? Well, that's where Christian apologetics comes in. And as we'll learn later, it's only Christianity that has a miraculous confirmation for its message. But when you're sharing with an unbelieving world, you have to begin at worldviews. You, you can't make the mistake of going into the gospel right away. A naturalist will simply look at you and say, your message is unreasonable. No God, no acts of God, no son of God, no word of God. Pantheists will simply say, oh, thank you. Well, I'll take Jesus too. Right? So it's going to make you more effective in evangelism. See, I made that mistake not too long ago. I remember I was speaking at the university here on the authority of the Bible. And an atheist in the audience raised his hand and asked me a question about Noah and the ark. And his first question was, well, how do you get all the animals on the ark? I mean, how do you get an alligator, a hippopotamus, and these things on the ark? And I said, well, those particular animals may have come on the ark they may not have. Why? Because they can survive in the water. Alligators and other reptiles, salamanders and lizards have no problem surviving in the water. And then he looked at me and said, well, well what about uh, insects? There's over a million species of insects. Uh, how can he build a cage for each little insect there? And I said, well, insects can survive in water. You know, mosquito larvae and others can survive in water. Also on the vegetation that is floating. But also, you know, he doesn't need to build a cage for every insect. Where you have a gathering of mammals, you'll have insects. All right? So that's no problem there. And he said, well, how do you get all the animals on the ark? I said, well, remember, he only needs to take land-walking mammals on the ark. He doesn't have to take alligators and things that can survive in the water. Simply land-walking mammals. And he only needs a pair from each. Now, if you take that, uh, most are about the size of a sheep. Most are actually smaller, but let's just uh, say, you know, they're the size of a sheep and you just need a pair. Well, tax taxonomists have uh, studied this, and they have shown that something, the dimensions of the ark, about the size of an aircraft carrier or a luxury cruise liner, and it was three stories, that on two stories you can hold all of the animals and have the third story for Noah and his family. Right, so I was giving this guy reasonable explanations, but he just kept going on. He said, well, what about the water content? Where did the water come from? You know, and I said, well, you know, the Bible talks about it. it comes from the canyons of the deep. And he said, well, what about the temperature of the water? You know, kill the bacteria and, and the balance of the temperature. It must be so precise. And he just kept going on and on. And I had made the mistake of this. 
I didn't start at the worldview level. What I needed, where I needed to go was to show that it's reasonable that God exists. And if God exists, then miracles are possible. In fact, miracles are more than possible, they're actual. The greatest miracle has already occurred. God created the universe out of nothing. So if God can create the universe out of nothing, is it any problem for God to raise someone from the dead? Is it any problem for God to part the Red Sea? Is it any problem for God to flood the earth and sustain you know, a family and the mammals there in an ark? No, if God exists, miracles are possible. Hey, and I'm comfortable believing in a miracle because a God that can do miracles exists. And that's where I needed to go. Instead of trying, what he was thinking was this, right? Everything needs a naturalistic explanation. Everything in the Bible needs a naturalistic explanation. So unless I get a good naturalistic explanation for these miracles, I will not believe. But then, if I get a naturalistic explanation, then they're not miracles. You know? And so that's where he was going, and I fell into that particular trap. So understanding worldviews is going to make you much more effective in evangelism. If the person you're sharing with already believes in God, then you can go right to the gospel. All right? But if he doesn't believe in God, that's where you got to begin, at the worldview levels. So understanding worldviews enables us to live out our faith consistently. Second, it enables us to be effective in our evangelism. And third, it's going to enable you to engage and transform your culture for Christ. You see, we often believe that the battle is over gay marriage or abortion, but it's actually much deeper. The battle begins at the worldview level. Charles Colson, once again, states this, A debilitating weakness in modern evangelicalism is that we've been fighting cultural skirmishes on all sides without knowing what the real war itself is all about. We have not identified that worldviews lie at the root of cultural conflict, and this ignorance dooms our very best efforts. The real war is not about abortion, homosexual rights, or the decline of public education. These are only the skirmishes. The real war is a cosmic struggle between worldviews, between the Christian worldview and the various secular and spiritual worldviews arrayed against it. So to engage and transform our culture for Christ, we've got to begin at the worldview level. Because real war is a war of worldviews. If we hope to tell the culture abortion is wrong because there is a universal moral law revealed by God. Well, we must first convince them there is a God who has given us his moral law and that all life is sacred to him and that he has set a law that governs all cultures and societies around the world. So if we hope to transform our culture, it begins at the worldview level. You know, a few years ago, I was speaking to a doctoral student at the University of Michigan. And we're talking about morality and ethics. Is there a universal moral law? And he stated that truth is relative. And if truth is relative, truth is created by each individual, then morality and ethics are relative. They're created by each individual. Why? Because he believed there was no God. If there is no God, what is the origin of truth? Where does truth originate? Well, it originates with man. Therefore, each person creates their own truth. And ethics is built on our definition of truth. If truth is relative, then ethics is relative. And so I asked him a question. I said, well, then what about the Holocaust? What about the things that Adolf Hitler did? Was that right or was that wrong? And he looked at me square in the face and he said, if Hitler thought it was right, then it was right. Because truth originates with man and morality 
and truth is created by man, therefore, morality, therefore, is individual. Well, when I first encountered this kind of thinking, you know, I nearly fell out of my chair. But now I understand where they're coming from, and it begins at the worldview level. I needed to show him that God exists. And once I showed him that God exists, then I showed him then there is a moral law giver who has given us a moral law that governs all society. And therefore, what happened in the Holocaust was wrong because it was murder. And murder in every culture is wrong because God values all human life. But until I could get him to acknowledge that it's reasonable that God exists, he wasn't going to accept any kind of universal moral law. So when it comes to the whole debate issue, uh, gay marriage, well, you know, it's wrong because there is a God who has set a moral law code regarding the definition of marriage in place. You're going to have to establish that we live in a theistic universe, that a personal God exists and he's revealed to us a universal moral law. Therefore, if we're going to engage and transform our culture for Christ, it begins at the worldview level. Now, let me present to you a biblical example here of a man who demonstrates how to engage a non-Christian world for Christ. Now, in the book of Acts, when we first begin, the disciples are preaching in the land of Jerusalem. What kind of worldview do the Israelites have, the Jews there living in Israel? Well, they have a theistic worldview. They believe in a personal God, and they believe in the law of God, the Old Testament. So the apostles, when they're preaching, they're quoting scripture, because they're in a theistic context and a culture that embraces the Old Testament law. However, now when we come to the book of Acts, the apostles are now going outside of the Jewish context and they are interacting and engaging now different worldviews and people who don't have the Old Testament law. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the city of Athens. And here now the gospel is going beyond Israel. Paul here is in a foreign land in the Greek culture here in Athens. This is the uh, center of learning here in uh, the Greek world. And the Greeks have a different worldview from the Jews. And here in Athens, Paul meets two groups of people here in verse 16. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Well, who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, the Epicureans are naturalists who believe the goal of life is pleasure. The Stoics are pantheists who believe in the divine force, the one and the goal of every person was to detach from things of this world and become one with the ultimate. And Paul here is a theist. So here we have a clash of all three worldviews here. Paul is a theist, the Epicureans are naturalists, and the Stoics are pantheists. Well, how does Paul preach to this crowd? Does he simply go right into the gospel? No. Before presenting the gospel, Paul builds a case for the theistic worldview. He begins with theism. He, he does a basic, what we call a cosmological argument. Here in verse 24 through 27, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Paul here begins by establishing the Christian worldview. And to present further evidence that we live in a theistic universe, whom does Paul quote? Does he quote the Old Testament here? No. Paul quotes the Greek poets, Epimenides and Aratus. In him we live and move, it says here, 
Um, in him we live and move and have our being, even as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, there's not only truth in special revelation, the Bible, there's truth in general revelation, in the sciences, in medicine, in psychology, in other fields. There is truth that we can discover. Therefore, should a Christian be educating himself in things outside the Bible? Absolutely. Paul knew the writings of the Greek philosophers and was able to use it in the defense of his presentation. Now, after he establishes the Christian worldview, then, in the following verses, Paul goes in to the gospel. So he first shows that the worldviews of naturalism and pantheism cannot be true. Thus we live in a theistic universe. After establishing that, then in verse 29 through 31, Paul goes into the presentation of the gospel here. And then as a result, we see in verse 34, uh, But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so Paul was quite successful in his presentation of the gospel here. He started by establishing, you know, he started at the worldview level by establishing that we live in a theistic universe. And then the presentation of the gospel would make sense to the Greeks. And as a result, several here in the academic elite of Greece came uh, to receive Jesus Christ. And so understanding worldviews is going to enable you to live out your Christian faith. It's going to enable you to engage the non-Christian world and be a powerful transforming agent in the culture around you. You know, I remember I was sharing Christ at the University of Dallas with a Hindu friend who had three masters, an absolute genius. He was from the Brahmin or the highest priestly class in India. And before I went into the gospel with him, I asked him about his particular worldview and he was a pantheist. He believes in Brahma, all-pervasive one, that all things are part of Brahma. And I asked him, well, then what about the universe? And he said, well, then the universe is eternal. And I said, well, you've got a master's in science and a master's uh, in engineering. I said, does the universe have a beginning? And he was reluctant to answer, and finally he reluctantly answered. He said, well, according to science, yes, the universe has a beginning. It's called the Big Bang. And I said, therefore, the universe is not eternal, and the worldview of pantheism cannot be true. And I said, and there's another question. Whatever has a beginning must have a must have a cause. And he jumped in right away. He said, yes, the law of causality. And I said, yes, whatever has a beginning must have a cause. What is the cause of the universe? And he sat there for a moment. I said, well, whatever created time is greater than time. It's an eternal being. Whatever created this great machine of the universe is highly intelligent, highly powerful. I said, it points to a personal God, an intelligent creator. And he sat there for a while and contemplated it. I mean, this was a great conversation. And I said, and this God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a miraculous life, died, and rose again. And he said, well, how do you know that? And so I went to defense of the gospel and the resurrection. Had a great conversation there. But you see, I needed to first establish that we live in a theistic universe. I had to first uh, defend the theistic worldview and show that his worldview, pantheism, could not be true. Then the presentation of the gospel would be more effective uh, in that engagement, that dialogue that we had there. So understanding worldview is going to make you uh, much more effective in witnessing to your non-Christian friends and engaging and transforming the culture for Christ. Well, I know we covered a lot here. And for those of you that want to read more on this topic, you know, the classic book here is by James Sire, The Universe Next Door, a book I've been quoting from tonight uh, by George Barna. 
is uh, Think Like Jesus. It talks about the Christian worldview and the struggles our church and our generation is having because we don't understand Christianity is a comprehensive worldview. And another great book on that is Total Truth by Nancy Piercy, who I've quoted. And of course, man, I've been quoting quite a bit here, How Now Shall We Live, uh, written by Charles Coulson. Those are four great books to read to further understand the Christian worldview. Well, I hope you've come to understand the importance of worldviews. These are some resources that will help you. And of course, probe.org is all about bringing a Christian worldview perspective on all the issues of the culture around you, from science to medical technology to ethics to political philosophy, history, theology. Uh, it's a great, great resource there for you, bringing you the Christian worldview perspective on all of these issues. So remember, Christianity is not just about my personal walk with God and my salvation. It is a comprehensive worldview. It applies to all areas of our life. And the sooner we as Christians understand this, the greater impact we'll have in transforming our world for Christ, thus fulfilling the great calling that God has upon us to transform lives and transform cultures for Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuprin. Get more information at evidenceandanswers.org, as well as audio from the Hawaii Apologetics Conference, where Pat was joined by Dr. William Lane Craig. Topics include the existence of God, the problem of God and evil, science and religion, the new atheism, and that's just for starters. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. If you believe that we ought to know what one believes, but also why one believes it, then become a part of us at Evidence and Answers. Your prayers and financial gifts help keep Evidence and Answers on this station and keeps Pat Zucran giving good evidence and good answers when it comes to the things of God. Just click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. It would be a real blessing to hear from you. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.